So it's very rare that my wife actually calls me at work. So when she does, it always gives me a moment to pause. It's very disconcerting. My phone rings and on the other side is silence, but I can hear that she's weeping. So immediately I'm thinking I've done something wrong. Somehow I've screwed up something and I don't even know. I'm searching in my brain like, what did you mess up on? So I very cautiously ask her, honey, why are you crying? And in a broken voice, she says, nothing, nothing. I press on. Tell me why you're crying then. What are you doing? She then goes on to explain that she's in the closet. She's cleaning up. She's holding on to this letter. And it's an acceptance letter from a private school that my son applied to. So I can envision her in her closet, just breaking down the emotional weight of all of this is just being released she doesn't know how to process it. First of all, I'm relieved that A, it's not something that I did, and two, that it's not something that we can't work through. To give you a little context here, my oldest son, he's 14 years old, and he recently applied out of his school to go to boarding school on the East Coast. Now we went through a lot of trouble to apply to several schools, but he had his heart set on this one school in particular. We went through numerous interviews, wrote essays, filled out the application. We even flew to the East Coast to tour the school. As I explained this to my wife, this was the outcome we were hoping for. This was the result that we wanted. So there's no need to be sad. She says, I know, I know. But I can still feel the pain of a mother. And it's true. I'm going to miss my little guy. This all happened fairly quickly. So I guess emotionally we weren't prepared for it as parents. Thinking we had a couple of more years to spend time with him, to see him grow, to see him become the person he is going to be. But this is something that he's wanted. Because he's that alpha type. He's super focused. He works really hard. And he's very bright. He wants to be around people just like him. And I don't want to deny that because as parents, we're holding on to something. Coming up, my next guest tells the story from the point of view of the child. How she had to leave home in the pursuit of something better. Stay tuned. First off, I'm just super excited to be speaking to you. Now, it's been some time since we last spoke and I yeah. have my notes, but my notes are terrible. I'm looking back at my notes. I'm like, what the <laughs> heck am I writing down? I know that you're part Indonesian and Chinese, right? I am 100% Indonesian Chinese by blood. Well, mm -hmm. Chinese by blood, uh, born and raised in Indonesia. Um, and then I went to Singapore when I was 14 and a half and I completed my high schooling there, did another year of random work here and there while hunting for scholarships and then ended up in Melbourne, Australia in 1999 when I was 20. I did my university education. Um, and after that, I fell in love with the country, worked really hard to get a permanent residence, which eventually led to a citizenship. Uh, so now I'm an Australian citizen and I consider Melbourne home. That's fantastic. Did you meet your husband here? Yes, that's right. 
And what ethnicity is he? He's white as can be. <laughs> <laughs> He's a. Uh, have you seen Ellie Wong? The stand-up Ellie Wong on Netflix. Shoot, did she um, do a bit when she's pregnant? Yeah. That's her. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So at the start of that, she said her husband is another Asian American. Yeah. And she said, "I know it's a big surprise, right? Because there's this uh, perception that." you know, uh, Asian women that look like this, wearing this kind of glasses and have a lot of opinions tend to date white guys. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm part of that stereotype, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so my husband's white. He's half British. So his father is British, but um, born in South Africa. And his mom is a fifth generation Irish immigrant that came to Australia a long, long time ago. So he's what uh, Australians normally would call a skip. <laughs> She's a slang for like a white, you know, a Caucasian Australian. Oh, yeah, that's pretty white. That's pretty white background right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. And um, so I, I, I think we just had just a wonderful conversation. And this is the danger of me doing the conversation twice. In my mind, I try to recreate it and it's impossible to. So if there are things that pop up from your recollection, I just know that mm -hmm. we, we were grooving and gelling and I just... I, we got to get something going here, right? So yeah, may, yeah. maybe we talk a little bit about your work, and then uh, it's first of all, I just want to say I appreciate the work that you do. You do that kind of work that I'm generally gravitating. I gravitate towards. It's very graphic, uh, but mm -hmm. it has a really strong illustration style. Sometimes you incorporate textures, but there's just a lot of design and design choices that are being made, and I really like it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I think that's what compelled me to reach out to you uh, initially just because you're a badass. And then I find out that you're halfway around the world. And we're, I, w I just want to know more about you and what some of your challenges are as a creative human being. Okay. Um, so I studied graphic design because, you know, I was growing up in Indonesia. Uh, and I, for as long as I can remember, I have always loved to draw. But back then... Uh, especially in a, a third world country, there's not a lot of information on what you can do with an artistic skill to make a living. Um, so the closest thing I could find was an uncle who was an architect and then a cousin that eventually studied graphic design. So I started trying to find out what is graphic design. At that time, I was maybe about 10 or 12, you know, trying to think of what I want to be when I grow up. Um, so that sort of led me into thinking that graphic design is one of those things where it's, it's probably the only way I can make a living out of loving to draw and being creative. So then I went to Singapore and um, with that in mind, sort of got into a course, which is kind of similar to a foundation course in a lot of universities that teaches uh, undergraduate degree in uh, design and the arts. So you learn how to draw, you learn how to ob observe things, uh, color palette, composition, all the basics, life drawing, portrait drawing, all, all that kind of stuff, um, art history and, and things like that. So after that, then um, I ended up in Melbourne, you know, because my family's not very well off um, and education in Indonesia is a little bit, you know, dismal when you want to be a creative. So I ended up having to find scholarships to further my studies. Uh, Singapore was also a scholarship kind of gig. 
Um, and that's how I ended up in Melbourne and studied graphic design. So I did that for four years with one year of internship where I learned a lot about typesettings, layout, compositions, a lot of very, you know, the graphic fundamentals gets drilled into me, mostly about typography. Um, and after that, I finished my internship and I felt like this is not for me because it's not really um, making me, it's not really giving me something that I, I love doing, you know, I, I want to get really stuck into, which in my heart of hearts is has always been drawing and making pictures. So then I did another year of um, of education because that's part of requirement. You go out into the industry and then you come back to the university and you do one final year of thesis and you graduate with honours. And in that final year, we were taught After Effects as an additional module. I think th this was around 2002. So it was just the beginning of motion graphics and motion design. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with how you made things move. And there's, I think even at that early stage, I could sense the storytelling bones within motion design, that it's, it's about narrative that unfolds over time. I fell in love with title sequences and thought this is a perfect thing to combine my love of typography and time. Um, and then started kind of exploring other things of making, other ways of making pictures that unfold over time. And then after that, I did master's, a master's degree, kind of in a way as, as a way to buy time while I was applying for my permanent residence. Um, and that yeah, that just sort of cemented my start in motion graphics. Um, so after I finished that, I tried to look for work. Um, it's Motion design and animation practically did not exist in Melbourne back then. So the only work I could find was in a really big post-production company called Illura. It's probably still the biggest uh, post house in Melbourne. It's Now it has won a few Emmys for their work on Game of Thrones and things like that. But back then, um, film department didn't exist. All they did was uh, visual effects and doing finishing of commercials. And the owner of the company, well, not the owner, sorry, the uh, general manager of the company thought it would be a good idea to introduce motion graphics into the company structure. So I was, they created a position for me and I was hired as a, designer to do motion design. So mostly it was animating titles, um, supers for commercials, texts and things like that. Um, but in between jobs, there's a lot of downtime. That's when I got to really practice After Effects. Um, and after that, sadly, after about a year and a bit, I felt really sick. I was, you know, jaundiced. I was in bed for 10 weeks. I had glandular fever that attacked my liver. And unfortunately, at the same time, the company was bought by another company. So they started laying off staff. And because I was one of the last that got hired, I was mm. one of the first to go. Right. So I was laid off and they gave me a handsome package to look after me. They were very kind, very, very wow, good people. Cool. Yeah, they really looked after me. And I always credit them as the reason why I have a good sense of self-worth and I'm able to fight for what I think I deserve, things like pay rises or uh, promotions and things like that, which I know a lot of young designers don't have. I think it's really important when you first start out in the industry to find a place that would really look after you and nurture you. So this is what that place did to me. And mm -hmm. even after I was laid off, as, as I started to get better, they called me back to do some freelance but um, I just wanted to do more. I wanted to push the motion graphics side of things a lot more, to do more with my skills and learn more. And Melbourne just did not have the industry. So I ended up moving to Sydney, 
worked for another company and did broadcast design for about two years. And after that, I got restless again. I wanted to freelance and decided to move to London. So I, I thought I could work and travel because Europe is just next door to London. We could get uh, work experience visas, you know, working holiday visas um, as Australian passport holders. So that's what me and my husband, which then was my boyfriend, did. We went to London together. We started freelancing, uh, traveling in between jobs. Um, and after a couple of years, we came back to Melbourne, but felt like we weren't done with our careers. So we went back there again. Um, and the second time around, we stayed for five years. And then I had a kid. And now I'm back here because London's just not a place to raise a family. Mm. So that's just a, a <laughs> long recap of my life from knowing I want to do something creative to uh, as a way to earn a living and where I am now. <laughs> well, you did a wonderful, masterful job of telling that story. So as you're telling me this story, I'm kind of frantically writing down little notes here and there. So I think there's mm. a lot to unpack here. And I, I want to see if I can and do that a little bit with you. So mm. you're, you're, you told me that your family uh, didn't have a lot of means. So that means that you have to kind of figure it out on your own. Mm -hmm. And you're living in Indonesia. Like, how do you, how does the 12 year, like, I, I don't know the age here when, when you decided to go to Singapore, but did you go on your own? Did, was there somebody there that could look after you? Yeah, we, we were shipped off uh, as a whole batch of kids. So there were 26 of us, 13 girls and 13 boys, scholarship winners. So what happened is Indonesia is and Singapore are part of the same um, regional sort of uh, group of nations called ASEAN, which is Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And what happens there is the Singapore Ministry uh, of Education gives out scholarships to people from other countries within that group of nations mm -hmm. to attract young talent because there's a declining population in Singapore. Basically, people are not having enough kids, so there's a, a lack of young professionals, basically. So what the ministry think would be good to do is to give scholarships to talented people from Malaysia, from um, Indonesia, from uh, Brunei, um, and then hopefully after four years of high school, we liked the country enough that we would consider staying and they would give us a bit of uh, the scholarship to the university, you know, and then bond us with, you know, like give us a, um, an obligation that after you finish your university, you should teach. Mm -hmm. And that's how they get us to stay is by this slow process of getting us young, coming into the country and then, you know, liking it and it becomes a second home and then staying, deciding to stay. And a lot of my friends from that year did that. But yeah, it was, it was a very difficult experience because we were all so young. You know, I was 14. The oldest pe uh, person in my group, I think there were two kids. The, the oldest people in my group were 16-year-olds. Mm -hmm. um, I was 14. I was one of the youngest. So you, Most people were 15. You left home yeah. at 14 to go to mm -hmm. Singapore? Yeah. Wow. And did you know anybody else in Singapore at that time? Uh, no, I think my family has a family friend that lived on the other side of the island from where I was boarded. But I didn't see them much until I had difficulty adjusting to life in the boarding house. Mm -hmm. And my mom actually had to fly out there 
to look after me and to take me out of the boarding house system and place me within a homestay environment with that family friend. So the first two years, the first year actually was very hard. I remembered the awful food. You know, I mean, you can imagine um, living in a very sheltered life with my family um, where everything was provided. You know, I had a mom who's very protective, maybe overprotective. <laughs> and and then suddenly, bam, you're in a very different environment where food is served in metal trays. Mm-hmm. Breakfast was horrible. It was like white sliced bread with baked beans. And, oh, it's just like some of the worst food I ever had. And It's like prison was, food, it sounds it like. It is like prison food, yeah. It's yeah. a prison style thing. You bring your, your metal tray along the rail and pe- <laughs> there's people behind the glass, Bain Marie, you know, serving you the baked beans. Slop, there you go. Right. Slop, next. Slop, you know, it's like that. There no, there's no hot water in the showers. The showers are kind of like this, you know, three or four stalls. Um, it's, actually, it's exactly like a prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch uh, um, Orange is New, the New Black, it's... <laughs> <laughs> the, whole, the whole dormitory there looks nicer than my first boarding house. Mm, I mean, really? they have, yeah, they have like, I don't know, they have, I don't know, the, the whole environment just looks nicer. It's a, it's a bloody prison, you know. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, the first year was really hard. I used to call home all the time crying and like, oh, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to come home. But I couldn't because... If you break out of the scholarship program, what they require you to do is to pay back all the money they have spent on you plus 10% interest. And there's no way my my family could do that, you know, because we don't, we are not rich. We come Mm -hmm. from a a lower middle class background. So I had to stick it out. And I think after being placed in the family that my family was friends with, I sort of bounced around to different homestay arrangements. My brother came out there to work and um, to sort of look after me. It was just a very difficult time. After two years of that, my dad said to me, look, we can't afford this anymore because um, if you are living outside of the boarding house system, you have to pay that yourself. You know, you have to pay for the room, for board, for food, for things, and the government gives you a little bit of pocket money. Whereas if you are in the boarding house system, you, you don't pay a single cent. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a bit of pocket money, less than what you would get if you are not within the boarding house system, but everything else is taken care of. Room, board, uh, you know, food, everything. Wow, okay. So after two years of that, my dad's like, okay, we can't do this anymore. I don't have any money. We don't have any money to support you in this system. You have to go back into the boarding house system. And by then I was, I I sort of like did a little bit of research and with my family, we discussed that maybe it would be bearable if I were to find a better boarding house. So that's what I did. And I found one with hot water, (laughs) um, with a bathroom in each room. So you don't have this big shared stall bathroom set up. You still have to share a room with another person, which means that, you know, it's a bit of a potluck what kind of person you ended up rooming with but i guess that's kind of common in uh, a lot of university situations as right. well you know. so you know it's it's, it's all a, a big huge experience of leaving home looking after myself getting along with other people um studying hard so i don't lose my scholarship and yeah just sort of navigating that but in the end i was re- i'm really thankful that this happened because i just you know it I grew up and I got to leave home and it was the first 
step towards leaving Indonesia and and exploring the wide world out there. You know, that's that's that sense of independence and freedom and what else is out there. And by the third and fourth year, I had a really good time. I had a really good time in the second boarding house, made a lot of friends, had all kinds of crazy rituals where if it's someone's birthday, you get hosed down with a fire hose um, that's, you know, installed at the end of each block of the boarding house and you get flour and, and cake thrown at you. It's just a lot of fun. You wow. know? Uh, yeah, so it became an amazing experience by the fourth year and I, I had a ball. Hey all, John Roth of The Future here to talk to you about The Perfect Proposal. The Perfect Proposal is everything you need to craft effective proposals that win jobs and close leads. This three-part downloadable project, written by Ben Burns himself, will help you approach proposals in a new way. The Perfect Proposal Kit is an end-to-end solution that will help you design proposals that win business. It's that simple. And frankly, if your close rate is over 60%, meaning you close at least 60% of the proposals you send, you probably do not need this resource. But if you fail to close that often, this could be the smartest $59 you will ever spend. You heard me right, it's only $59. So if you're interested in proposing perfectly, head on over to thefuture.com. That's thefuture.com and check out The Perfect Proposal. Okay, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm glad you kind of took it to the a positive place because I was sitting there <laughs> thinking, if I'm listening to this, yeah, it was a little dark. I mean, if if I'm some person who's poor, and this opportunity came up, it would be a dream come true, regardless of the situation. Because what am I going to do? Stay in my country and and do nothing, right? So yeah. there's, I think what happened was maybe emotionally. You, you mm. just had to be in a different headspace and you got there, yeah. thankfully, with the support of your family and your brother. And once yeah. you were a little bit more mature, maybe 16 at that point, maybe. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah so then it's like, okay. And then you, you got smarter mm. and you figured out how to work within the system. to So at least yes. you, you didn't have to pay for it, but you, you, got a, you got a better room. You got a better place yeah. to stay and it worked out. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and exactly. when you describe this cafeteria food that's being like prison and slop, <laughs> it's, it's kind of very interesting to me because when I was growing up, I loved, and you're going to freak out, I love cafeteria food. It was so different. You know, yeah. the, the pack of what is that called? The, the, the canned sweetened pears that they would put in there and this yeah. rubbery thing with gravy on it that was supposed to be, I, I don't know beef stroganoff i don't know what the heck it was meatloaf yeah, yeah. but i was like i yeah. never had meatloaf before because everything i ate before was food cooked by my mom so it's traditional yeah. vietnamese food so everything was exotic and different i'm like Ooh. give me your applesauce i never knew what applesauce yeah. was and i ate it so <laughs> it's very interesting how we we kind of look at these experiences and have a totally different outcome but I think hey don't get me wrong i i also love cafeteria food <laughs> but good cafeteria food is great yeah like in my uh, senior high school, so it's like year 11 and 12. So mm-hmm. when I'm 17 and 18, the last few years of your high school before you go into university, I was in a different school than the first two years. Okay. The first two years was uh, an all-girls Catholic school, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. They had amazing cafeteria food. But then I went into the senior high school in Singapore's called Junior College, which is, you know, year 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I guess in American it's like what uh, junior and senior year of high school, yep. right? So the last two years, even better cafeteria food. There's like all these choice. Um, <laughs> so you mean uh, and the I food got even better? The food got great. Wow. You know? and e- even the ones that served at the boarding house, not at the school, at the boarding house, uh, my second boarding house, it was really good, you know, um, because I took um, that special subject that taught art as a foundation. I had to do uh, a big sculpture project in my final year and I would be in the school doing the installation and coming home late at night and they would put aside uh, the bowl of food that was served at dinner for students that are coming home later and I would take that, I would sit in the quiet, you know, darkness of the cafeteria, semi-darkness of the cafeteria where all the other kids have finished and are kind of like running around the grounds or studying or talking to each other. And I would enjoy that food like, you know, all by myself. It's like, mmm, yum. <laughs> <laughs> so good cafeteria food is great, you know. Uh, bad ones is just like, oh. Terrible. Like, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we turn this into like a food podcast, because yeah. people are like, oh man, I'm missing yeah. some of that food right now. Let's yeah. let's change direction a little bit if we can. Sure. Mm-hmm. I just think this entire experience would have just unimaginable for me as a 12 year old or 13 year old, mm. and you're you're doing it, and it, it's I, I just can imagine how independent and strong you must have become through that process. It was uneasy, yeah. and yeah. and luckily you had the love and support of your family, but you yeah. get through it, and then you're bouncing around, and, and I just hear how you're moving from city to city and trying out kinds of things, and I think this is just part of you being becoming very resilient. That yeah. despite the hardships or the uncomfortable weirdness of having a stranger sleep in your same room and and communal showers and prison slop, that yeah. you you just become tougher as a human being. Yeah. So I got I, a, I got a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. So you have a, a little child, right? Yeah. Are you gonna put the little one through the same process so that they <laughs> have mom's DNA, her template? <laughs> That's very interesting. We talk about this endlessly because <laughs> I said to my husband, I want Ainsel to have the resilience that you can only get if you are born and raised in less than privileged circumstances. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do that? We live in Melbourne, which is one of the best places to live on the planet, you know, voted best livable city, blah, 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 seven times in a row, whatnot. Um, it's clean. It's beautiful. I mean, this is why we move home from London. You know, he has loving parents and extended family, an aunt uh, that really spoils him all the time, other aunties that come and go and uncles and grandparents. He's he's going to be, you know, I, I said to my husband, I used to think before I had him that I will be the one that's strict, that's full of discipline because mm-hmm. I'm like, you have to do good in school. You have to do this. You have to do that. But after he's born, I'm just so soft. And I said to my husband, <laughs> one of my biggest problems, I think, will be that I will spoil him. Yeah. And yes, it's just it's just hard. I, I debate whether I should send him to live in Jakarta mm-hmm. for a year when he's a teenager, when they're at a difficult age, when they just fight you and rebel against you because they have to. It's part of the process of growing up. I think maybe at that time when he's 16 or 17, it might be good for him to do one year in an environment that's completely different in in Jakarta. So he gets to know a little bit of where his mother comes from, you know, Mm. a bit of my background. It's part of his DNA too, you know. Right. So that is definitely a possibility. Um, How old is he now? Yes. 
He's 16 months. So <laughs> a long way to go before that happens. Yeah. Okay. People who don't have kids were like rolling their eyes right now, and people who do have kids are like nodding their head right at this moment. Like, yeah, you gotta start thinking about this. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. I've got a long way to go. I guess it's it's like you never know what kind of person this kid will become,、mm-hmm. and that's part of the whole thing about raising a human being is you have to constantly adapt and change and improvise and think on your feet and play all these kinds of different roles and strategize and you know、right. come up with a plan and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, we'll see we'll see how he turns out, but that is definitely something that both my husband and I are on the same page about. So that's great, you know, putting him、yeah. somewhere in a different. Teach him some resilience and open his eyes up to the world and how other people live.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm not sure who said this. I want to attribute this to Gary Vaynerchuk, but I'm not sure. It sounds like something、mm-hmm. he would say, but he's like, "Luxury makes you soft." So <laughs> you and I, we we grew up. I, I'm not going to say even lower middle class. We grew up poor, and、mm. we we moved. We were very upwardly mobile in terms of socioeconomic standing, but we still had that kind of refugee mentality. And、mm-hmm. so、uh, it was not easy growing up, and it made me tougher. And I,、mm-hmm. I think about ideas that would scare a lot of people excite me.、And、now I look at、yeah. my, my little kids. My kids are older than yours. Yours is that they're soft. <laughs> I want an iPad, and I want an iPad Pro with a pencil. I was like, "Are you kidding me?" I just wanted a notebook with a marker and and shoes that weren't handed down to me from my brother, right? And so I was、yeah. like, "Honey, we we need to screw around with our kids. We need to make this home unstable. We need to, <laughs> otherwise, they're going to be like, 'Oh, it's a little uncomfortable. Let's turn on the air conditioner.' <laughs> What are you talking about, kid? <laughs> right? So it's it's the the social experiment. Now you have years、oh, wait, to kind wait, of process how, this. Go ahead. So wait, wait, wait. How, how old are my kids? I have two boys. One is fourteen, and one is twelve. He, the twelve year old just turned twelve. Whoa.、Yeah. Wow! Yeah.、Okay. Um, and like boy or girl? I have two boys. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> How did you survive? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in constant awe of people that have multiple children because、yes. it's really hard work, especially boys. I mean, I'm not,、right. not getting into gender stereotypes here, but there has been a lot of research to show that boys are a lot more active and a lot more, you know,、uh, wild in the、mm-hmm. toddler years and. Once you survive that, then when they become teenagers, they're easier than girls. But yes, two boys running around. Yeah,、wow. you, you pay the price early, or you pay the price later. But there's a price to be paid. And let's do a little public service announcement right now for everyone who's listening. <laughs> One child is a handful, but two children—it's not double the work; it's quadruple the work. It's—it's、yep. it's like squared because they fight with each <laughs> other. It's a—it's a—it's a competition for resources, attention, and all that kind of stuff. And it is mentally、mm. draining. And、mm-hmm. no matter what, you think we're the same parents, same genetic pool, same house,、yeah. same environment, same neighborhood, but they grow up to be totally different human beings. Yeah. Wow.、And、so I just want to warn everybody: if you had one and it was good, and you're like, "Oh, let me think about the second one," you <laughs> heard it here. It is a lot more work, more than you can imagine. <laughs> yep. 
So I'm, I'm not I'm not having a second one. One is enough for me. <laughs> so the PSA has already worked on you. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 And you know, like if if you're ever in doubt, just just go to a playground or like a, a school and see how parents with more than one child see how exhausted and run down there. See the bags <laughs> under their eyes. See the frustration. Mm. But wow, like I mean, for you, you have a 14 year old and a 12 year old. That's that's almost you know, almost the era of empty nest, you know, and mm-hmm. it's it's kind of bittersweet, isn't it? You know, how fast time goes and, you it know, is. and in a few years they will be like, I'm a grown-up now, Dad. I can make my own decisions and, yeah, it's kind of sweet. Yeah. Well, my, my son is going to go, my 14-year-old is going to go to boarding school next year. So that oh. means that we have one left and we've decided as parents – we're going to pull my my youngest out of school. Mm-hmm. I mean, once he's done with this year mm-hmm. and we're mm-hmm. going to take him out of school for a year and we're going to just travel with him and try to like introduce the real world, you know, to oh so it's God. not always this safe place. So we're, we're doing a social experiment on our own child. Lucky boy. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe how lucky he is. So wow. We, we just nice realized. Yeah, you know, well, thanks. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what happens. It could be a total disaster, but... No, he, he won't be. You know, he's, he, he runs the gamut of emotions from being really excited one week mm. and then saying the other week, oh, he's kind of having t- second thoughts because he's going to miss his friends. But I said, you will make yep. new friends. But your friends yeah. will still be here. We go home from time to time. You know, we're not going to mm-hmm. be on the road all the time. But yeah. it'll just be the three of us. And we're... We're very. We're going to be able to explore the world together. When I speak at a conference, you'll go to the conference. That's just how it's going to be now. Wow! So fantastic. Uh, what about work? What about you and your partner's work? Okay. Well, I'll just, I just. Uh, I'm going to answer that question in a very brief way. But if you want to know more, I'll yeah. tell you more. The yeah. the kind of work that I'm doing mm. as we transition away from a service company to a product company, mm. yeah. I can do anywhere, and it actually. You just make money when you sleep. It's a very different kind of business model. Mm-hmm. So I don't yeah. even need to be around. Like I'm doing this podcast, talking mm-hmm. to you from my home to your home. Mm-hmm. And as long as I have a laptop on my mic and a good internet connection, mm-hmm. there's, I pretty much can do anything. Yeah. Right? So it, it's good to go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And same with your partner, I guess. Like there's nothing tying down either no. of you. No. Oh, Basically, great. she's been a full-time mom. Yeah. And so she's free she's you know once she stopped working in our company she mm-hmm. hasn't worked anywhere so it's been she's ready to do something this is going to oh, be a, fantastic. A, a year of adventure and exploration for us congratulations well thanks really happy for you i'm jealous of your little boy i wish i had that experience when I was little. <laughs> what a lucky boy well we'll see nice i'll report back in a year mm-hmm. and i'll tell you it was a total disaster it was amazing and you have many years to plan or prepare and, and maybe that's the place you'll be too who knows Right. I don't think it'll be a total disaster. It'll be amazing. (laughs) So happy for you. Well, thank you very much. Now, Mm -hmm. you did bring this up because you Mm -hmm. were talking about uh, women and and, or girls and boys. And we started tiptoeing into the gender thing. I I would like to just kind of open this up to you because I'm always interested in hearing the female perspective uh, about challenges that you face as as a woman working in a a field that seems to be very male dominated. I just Mm -hmm. want you to share your experiences. Yeah, uh, it, it's run the gamut of uh, really bad to sort of like insidious, it's hard to place type of thing. So when I was working in my full-time job, there was a senior designer there that 
bullied me. I don't know if he would have acted differently if I had been a man. I don't know. I mean, a lot of these things is really hard to pin down to gender issues because, you know, unless it's something that is out and out there, blatant sort of sexual harassment or blatant sexism, mm -hmm. uh, it's really hard to pin down the negativity you experience and the challenges you experience. Is it because I was young? Is it because I was not good enough? Would it have been different if, you know, the person, if I was a man, uh, all that sort of stuff? It's really hard to tell. But um, the thing about sexism in the workplace is it's really difficult to know that it's, it's, it is sexism, like I said before, when you're in the middle of it. It's only in retrospect when I, when, when I look back and I talk to other women um, in the industry that it starts to, the pieces sort of like fall into place. Mm -hmm. And if there are so many of us reporting similar things over and over, there's got to be something going on, you know. Um, things like if you're in a meeting, a creative meeting, and your opinions get sort of ignored, and then you hear your male colleagues say exactly the same idea, and then that gets treated like gold, you know. That's happened to me. Uh, things like you know, going to a meeting and then the client who's a man or a woman, because sexism, women can be guilty of that too. The client only talked to my male colleague and not me, you know, not making eye contact, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, other things where you just kind of, it's, it's like walking with really heavy boots or like swimming with boots on that it just generally it feels you get a lot of resistance going, trying to push yourself forward, whether it's advancing your career, getting a pay raise, or just going somewhere and wanting to do what you, you want to do, whether it's expressing your ideas in a project or um, putting your hand up on a project. It's just finding it that much, uh, just slightly harder than it should be. Your brain, like part of your brain thinks, um, you know, you've been doing this for X number of years. You know how to do this. Why is it so hard to to apply that skill and push it forward and go somewhere with it? You know, it, it's kind of like nagging in the back of your head. And then, like I said, it's really hard to tell that it's really happening when you're in the middle of it. Only afterwards, when you look back and you talk to other people and you kind of, oh, okay, you have the same experience that I do. Um, you know, like being trusted on a project. Um, you know, I remember in one of my full-time jobs, we had to do these spots for uh, a big broadcast channel and it involves filming against green screen. And I just went, okay, the, somehow I think the green screen is not lit properly or this is, this is kind of not, it doesn't look very um, easy to remove in post because the, the, the color was uneven, the, the lighting was not done properly. And I tried to bring it up to my producer and I just got brushed aside. Like, oh, what do you know? You know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then sure enough, when we get, we got all the footage and we try to key out the actor, you can't. And then the producer, the same producer turned around to me and said, hey, uh, can you stay back and roto this? I said, no. <laughs> and she said, why not? She was very cross with me because I said, no. She said, oh, but this, this will be a good experience for you. This will be a good skill for you to learn. I said, no, I don't want to learn how to roto because that's not what I want to do with my life. That's not what I want to do as, a, as part of my career. It's not a useful skill for me. And no, I, I don't want to stay back and roto this. Uh, I got to go home. 
you know, saying no and then just getting resented for it. I, mean, I don't know. Like, and now that I'm older, I look back and I, I, I constantly ask myself, wonder, would that have been easier if I had been a man? Would I have been listened more? Would they have paid more attention to the warnings I give them that, look, that something is going wrong with the shoot. The lighting isn't very, you know, even, uh, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Just constantly happen over and over and over. And of course, uh, in my work to try and sort of encourage people to, in, you know, be more diverse and, and listen to the other side of the camp, I get a lot of pushback. Um, for example, when we, uh, you know, uh, me and other women, ask podcast uh, makers and design conference organizers to include more women, more often than not, the answer is, you know, delivered with a certain hostility, um, which, you know, is, is kind of sad and frustrating. I try and understand it because, you know, after all, a lot of people make podcasts and organize design conferences out of the love for the community. It's not something that you do to make money or, you know, I mean, you do try and make money because, it's a lot of work, but that's not the prior primary motivation. So I try and understand that to get criticized when you're doing a labor of love is hard. It can be hurtful. It can right. be unpleasant. But, you know, on that note, me and other women, we've tried to be really positive and really polite, uh, offering help, saying, if you need more women, I can help you find some I know that a lot of women, when they get approached, they get cold feet and they don't say yes. I can try and help you encourage them to say yes. I can help. Let me help. I can help. Let me help. But often it just gets met with, you know, uh, either we get ignored or it's the reaction is kind of hostile. Being blocked on Twitter for even, you know, suggesting something politely, not using any sort of attacking language. And then you, you just kind of have to move on if you want to keep fighting the good fight but it does get tiring it does get very difficult sometimes mm, i can understand yeah. that so yeah. in that situation with the green screen thing i'm, I'm mm. trying to map back if how i would have reacted if i was you or if i was the producer or if i was the director yeah and so i'm, I'm trying to keep that in my mind here so the yeah. producer that you were you were kind of bringing this issue up to was another woman right Yes. Okay. So now this is a this is a female and female crime. I'm I'm hearing here. Yes. Possibly yeah. right, but yeah. it also sounded to me like this producer didn't even know what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just inexperience. So we're, I'm not going to say well, um, it's it's dangerous to kind of uh, say that that person represents all kinds of people because she could have been a guy, she could have yeah. been a, a transgender person, it could have been anything. But yeah. the the bottom line is, inexperienced producers make horrible producers. Yeah. Because you should be looking at all places, all ideas from high to low. It's like, there's a problem. You should be confident enough to know that you don't know. And so you should solicit the opinions and help and ideas from other people. And so yeah. I'm, I'm glad yeah. that you refuse to do roto work. Uh, <laughs> and that's because by doing that, you kind of cover up for the mistake of that person. So I think we yeah. all are allowed to make choices. The problem yeah. is sometimes um, the choices don't seem to have a consequence attached. So now yeah. that person's going to remember back, yes, Lillian mm. did tell me the green <laughs> is funky as hell. <laughs> and I said, no, don't worry about it. I got this. Yeah. Right. And then they do yeah. it. Yeah. And then now they pay the price. And it's like, oh, I don't have money in the budget for this. This is going to take yeah. longer. And basically mm. that green screen was a total loss. Yep. Yeah. It really was. So the project was kind of messed up. 
from from that point of view. And the interesting right. thing was that the director was also a, a woman. Um, huh. But you know, for some, for, I don't know. I, I don't know what happened. It's, it's one of those projects yeah. that sort of went wrong because uh, I think there's too much at stake, and everybody got nervous. Everybody sure. tried to to do the right thing. Um, I don't know. Um, but I guess yeah. another example I wanted to bring out is that in that same company, um, you know, I joined them after I got laid off from my first work, and uh, you know, I worked hard and. There was me and there were uh, one other full-time designer who was also a woman. So in terms of ratio of breakdown, we have two female designers, one male creative director. Um, and then the, the other female designer left to go traveling or whatnot. And uh, the creative director hired another designer. And this time it's a, it's a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. It's just like, I guess this is one of those things that a lot of female designers experience is that they, they just feel a little bit inferior, I think. So, Mm -hmm. and then I started, that that happened to me. So I started developing a bit of a chip on my shoulder because my boss was a male creative director, listened to him more than he listened to me. That's what I feel. Um, And he got trusted with more projects. He got trusted to lead projects more than I did, even though I was there longer so I knew the in and outs of the company better. I knew the the, the clients, the producers amongst the, the client side a lot better. I know who's who and what's what. But I never got trusted with leading a project, even though looking back, if I were to apply an objective eye, we had the same level of skills, you know. So that those that sort of thing has happened to me and it's happened to a lot of other women as well. And when I talk to other women, when this kind of situation happens, they just kind of, they just lose confidence like that you know just quickly lose confidence and go oh maybe i'm not good enough uh maybe this person has a lot more experience and talent than me and then you know it just the 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 more you act like you're not confident the more you act like you're not good enough the more it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and the more you're not going to get trusted with projects and the harder it is for you to get good projects and the harder it is for you to prove that you deserve a pay rise you deserve a promotion Mm -hmm. so it's it's a bit of a vicious cycle and i think one of the biggest problems women face is the the confidence issue, uh, and it's just everywhere. It's rooted so deep that you know we constantly doubt ourselves, um, and it's even more apparent as a parent. You know, now that I'm I'm a mother, I, I talk to all the other parents out there, and the dads are a lot more confident than the mums. The mums are constantly doubting themselves, like, what have I done wrong? Am I doing this right? You know, then this this always this inner voice of am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? So I think it's a lot of it is social conditioning. You know, like boys are taught to be uh, sort of uh, almost braggy. You know, like this really confident, bold sort of persona, and that's how you become a, a man or a guy in life. This is how you carry yourself. This is how you function. This is how society functions. Whereas as a woman. It's always the the sort of like back burner position of is am I good enough? Am I am I doing this right? I should wait my turn. I should be polite. I should not interrupt. And that just becomes difficult when a workplace is predominantly uh, male. So the, the the more you doubt yourself, the softer you become. The harder it is for you to get your opinions heard, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's it's a very difficult cycle to break. I think. So what do we do? <laughs> it's starting to bum I, me I out here. I, I don't. I don't know. I think 
you know, I've, I've been doing this sort of work and this this sort of uh, thinking for a long time when it comes to addressing issues faced by minorities. And I think this is why Spectrum was born, you see. I, I just spent a long time thinking about it and discussing it with my husband, who's a white straight male. And we sort of come to the conclusion that you can't make people do the right thing. You can only gently, gently sort of coax them into exposing themselves more to other people's point of view, to how people who don't look like them, people who don't act or come from the same social background or gender or a religious persuasion or whatnot, how do they see life? How do they think? How do they feel? And I feel like as designers, it is a very um, advantageous exercise because we need to think outside the box all the time, right, to solve creative problems. And the more you step outside of your comfort zone, the more you expose yourself to things that are very much the opposite of who you are, it's it's uncomfortable, obviously. Um, but the more you do that, the more you're getting your brain to get used to that pathway. It's almost like I'm not a neuroscientist, but I I'm I sort of have this feeling that this this is kind of a, like a muscle. You know, the more you exercise it in a certain way, the stronger it would be in performing that sort of task. You know, so the more you kind of push the, the the brain to kind of step outside the comfort zone, think new ways, think of new ways of looking at things, of approaching things, the more the easier it would be for you, and the more uh, obvious uh, solutions to problems will be to you if you're working as a designer. Yeah. Mm. Just give, just sorry, just give me a second. The cat is destroying a plastic bag in the corner, making a lot of noise. Before we, we kind of dive deeper into this, I just want to point out something here. Mm-hmm. In case you don't know who Lillian is, she's written an article in Motionographer called Survival Tips for Women in Motion Design. I strongly recommend we all of you who haven't read this yet go out there and read it. There's five tips for women in motion design and you use pretty straightforward language. I think that it's very open and I, I just like the tone that you've set up. So you talk about not using weak language and calling people out for being sexist, but to do it in a way that you don't lose your cool, to find mm. fellow people who share your ideas, men and women, uh, you call them feminists, but build your support network. And mm-hmm. then to look at the positives and don't measure yourself by their standard. So this is an awesome thing. And I just wanted to ask you, yeah, because I see there's a long thread here of comments. Mm. What has the feedback been from both men and women? Um, the feedback has been really positive. I think there's maybe one or two people, um, both men and women, who are uh, kind of like a bit of a naysayer. You know, they say, no, 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 um, that's never happened to me. Uh, I am surrounded by really good people, maybe because I'm just lucky. It's never happened to me. Uh, If I'm in a hiring position, I always hire somebody based on the talent, based on the merit of their talent and not because of their gender or skin color or whatnot. so on and so forth. And I, I feel like that sort of responses is great. Um, it obviously doesn't come from a malicious point of view or anything. But what I would like to say to people who say, oh, this has never happened to me, is that you don't know. This stuff goes really, really deep. Uh, the, the conditioning that makes you biased towards certain genders and stereotypes, it goes so deep that mm-hmm. you don't even realize that it's happening. I read somewhere on Twitter, somebody tweeted this 
social experiment where they put forward two candidates. One has a male name, the other one has a female name. They are uh, political candidates running for office. And when you describe the male candidate as being confident, uh, ambitious, um, and all these attributes, you know, people vote for him. People would go, yes, uh, I like I like the sound of that. He sounds like a guy that would get the job done. Let's go mm-hmm. vote for him. When you attribute the same things to the female candidate, both male and female voters do not want to vote for her. So wow. in today's society, you know, I think one of one of the hardest things to do is to admit that you are biased, admit that you are flawed as a person, because all of us are. I mean, I'm not a saint. I have sexist and racist tendencies too, because because the world, because I grew up in it. I don't. I'm not an isolated person growing up in a bubble of perfect whatever. And because the perfect whatever thing doesn't exist, everyone can always be better. Everyone can always improve. But I think the hardest thing is to 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 like my friend Michelle Higa said. She's one of the best people out there that I luckily have found through Motionographer, through uh, our work as fellow contributors, and now we're really good friends. Uh, I always talk to her about these things, and she has all these amazing wisdoms. You know, um, She said to me that uh, she read this somewhere that to be a better person, I think you need to spend some time in that place that is uncomfortable. Get really used to that discomfort and, and be really introspective and really honest with yourself and see what you can do to change a little bit at a time, you know. And another side of that coin is, you know, when when people say, oh, that has never happened to me, um, uh, maybe I'm just lucky. The, 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 there's, there's something that can be really damaging about saying that in certain situations where in public forums or chat rooms or situations where you, you talk to other people and other people ex- are expressing hurt and negative experiences, they come to unburden themselves, I feel like that's one of the most damaging things you can say. When somebody comes to you and say, I've been sexually harassed at work, or I'm dealing with this really sexist client, colleague, boss, whatnot, I can't believe he did this to me, it's really hurtful, da 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 da. And then you come in on the other side and you say, Oh, that's funny. That's never happened to me. You know, and it's just, I feel like it's a little bit insensitive. And I think we should all be mindful about that. You know, when people come to us with stories of, of pain and struggles, for our response not to be, wow, uh, that's never happened to me. <laughs> it's just, it just makes you sound a bit like a dick, you know? <laughs> and it's not right. helping anyone. Um, and yeah, and, and the, the issue with racism and sexism and stuff like that is that these sort of biases are rooted so, so deeply that you don't know. You don't know that it's not happening to you because that's, that's part, the biggest part of sexism is that um, unless it's something really blatant like women who are not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia and things like that, uh, in our modern sort of Western society, a lot of it manifests itself in things that are not there. You know, meetings that don't happen because the boys... Uh, decide to to chat amongst themselves about this new project and you get left out. You never know whether it's because you're a woman or because they just don't think you're good enough or because you're not senior enough or whatnot. You, you'll never know. 
you know, and promotions that don't happen and we have the whole gender pay gap and all that sort of stuff in, in things that are not there, things that don't happen, things that don't come to you. Mm-hmm. It's just really hard to know. Wow. Okay. So yeah. here, here's one of my beliefs here is that I think we're all entitled to our own experiences. So when somebody shares something they say, and they say, this has happened to me. I think it's it's so weird that the mm-hmm. only way you can relate to say to somebody like that is say that's never happened to me and and then therefore implying that you must not be telling the truth because you've never seen it you know so if you've lived in in Japan all your life let's just say mm-hmm. and you've not seen um, a, a person of African uh, descent you might say well I've never seen an African mm-hmm. person they must not exist that's that seems so strange because you haven't had the mm. hardship or face some kind of discrimination, conscious or unconscious, that you shouldn't try to invalidate other people. I just feel mm. like everybody has an experience and we would be better as a culture, as a community, as a society if we just said, yes, that's an experience. I want to know more or at least just shut up. Don't even say anything. If you can't pretend to understand, just don't say anything. And and likewise, if you've only been yeah. living in a place where it's a meritocracy and everybody treats everybody the same and there's everybody gets paid the same based on experience and talent, well, good for you. Write a different article about this wonderful <laughs> place where you work called Nirvana and let's celebrate that. That's But let's not try to jam it yeah. in. So that's kind of what's really interesting to me because people seem to be so self-centered that all they can say is this hasn't happened to me and therefore yeah. it must not have happened, period. It sounds kind of idiotic if you just say it out loud like that, right? Yeah, I think part of the problem is people don't mm-hmm. people don't realize how they sound sometimes. But I think another side of that is they think they're helping. They think they're helping by saying that it's never happened to me. So, you know, it, well, I, I've never I've I've been in this industry for a long time. It's never happened to me. I've never seen it happen. So maybe if you just buck up and think that it's not because of sexism, then you'll feel better and you won't feel so bad, you know. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a funny thing. They think they're helping. Um, and also, I, I listened to uh, a podcast a while ago. I don't remember who it is, but it's, um, I'll have to find it for you. But basically, one of the people on the podcast is this uh, female journalist. I think she's a journalist. Her name is Brittany Luce. Uh, she's black. Mm-hmm. American woman. Um, I'm not sure what her sexual orientation is, but she said to the host, who's a white straight guy, she said that in America, the whole dynamics of like black and white race, racial relations, which is quite unique and it's, I've never experienced it, obviously, um, is that it's very hard to talk about race and discrimination based on that with white people because it's uncomfortable. Um, it's it's for for the white person to hear that such things still happen you know so the truth will bring a lot of discomfort that's why everybody's shield is constantly up or immediately up and go no no that's never happened no no we don't mean it like that um i'm not a racist no i'm not biased i'm not sexist you know it's because the truth makes life more uncomfortable for the one in power. So that's where the denial comes from. And in my work, uh, 
you know, trying to be more active in women's forums and, and um, Facebook groups for all female animators and motion designers like Pun Animation uh, and stuff like that. Um, and the Slack channel where all the ladies have a secret channel, they can talk amongst themselves with no fear. You know, it's a safe place. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a little frustrating that some people still say things like, I don't understand why the all-female channel need to exist. I don't understand why it has to be like this. And it's like, oh, goodness, look around. It's because of the way things are. You know, it is sad that it, it has to exist. It is sad that it still exists, but it's needed because when women speak up, when women speak out and, and experience these negative things out there, sexism or whatnot, and they want to unburden themselves, they, they're seeking solidarity and comfort and assurance, they get attacked by not just by men, but by other women as well. That's why uh, when one of the last things I did as a um, an admin on the Motion Design Slack channel is to put up a, a rule um, on the on the ladies channel to say that if somebody is expressing hurt and seeking assurance and comfort and solidarity, you are not allowed to say, "Oh, boohoo, you're being a crybaby," or "Oh, you're you're being negative," or uh, "I don't want to I, I don't want to hear it." If you don't have anything to say, like you said, what you said before, if you don't have anything mm. good to say, don't say anything. So that's that's one of my. I sort of put my foot down, it was again, inspired by other podcasts and other public forums where basically you create a, a code of conduct and when somebody, a member, steps outside that, you have a very clear document that you can point out, see, you've broken this rule and this rule and this rule and because of that we have to suspend you, we have to take actions and so on and so forth. So I think it's it's really important to regulate people's behavior in online spaces because people just generally tend to be more aggressive and more horrible when there is a screen in front of them and you know you're not you're not there as a person you're there as a name 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 thanks for listening tune in next week for part 2 as i continue my conversation with Lillian Darmano Features hosted by me, Chris Doe. Our show is edited by Samuel Burns with an assist from Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn for composing our theme song. To subscribe to the Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. While you're there, do us a solid and leave us a review. Your comments will help guide future programming, and hey, it'll help us with our rankings. Can't get enough content? You're in luck. We have over 500 episodes on our YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash the future is here. Make sure you don't miss out on upcoming events, workshops, live broadcasts, and webinars by signing up for our newsletter. Go to our site, thefuture.com, and click on the email sign up button. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the future is here. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.